Welcome everyone to the Score Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Boone, the lead fantasy analyst at The Score, and today's episode is presented by Head and Shoulders. Offense for great hair, defense against flakes. The week five preview show is here. I will say off the top, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, so there are a lot of things yet to be decided on the COVID front. We got a bunch of positive tests today, so some games here, the Titans-Bills, the Chiefs-Raiders, the Broncos and Patriots, all three of those games are up in the air right now. Obviously, fantasy football is the least of our concerns when it comes to this. We want to make sure everybody's healthy, want to make sure everybody gets through this, and that it doesn't spread to more players or more teams or their families. So if you roster players in any of those games, you're going to have to make sure that you got backup options just in case this week. But we'll see in the coming days what kind of news comes up for that. That's not going to be our focus today, though. We're going to focus on the week five slate with our guest, Chris Allen. Before we bring him in, though, the usual reminder, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you use. That guarantees you're going to get the show as fast as possible once it goes up. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a rating, give us a review on that podcast app. Always appreciate those. I've been trying to shout out anyone who leaves one in there recently. So thank you for that. All right. Today's guest is Chris Allen. You can find his stuff at 4 for 4, at Number Fire, at Dynasty League Football. He's on Twitter at Chris Allen FFWX. Chris, welcome to the show, man. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. I think so far, I mean, I'm not as exhausted as I thought I would be because, I mean, as we we're talking <laughs> before the show and just with the constant news cycle, especially over the last couple of weeks, I mean, with the with these COVID positive tests coming in and teams having to be uh, games having to be postponed, teams having to figure out whether or not they're going to play. I mean, just the, even the night before uh, the games are supposed to go. I mean, it's just we already knew that this season was going to be a complete roller coaster and just already three, four weeks into the season that's really coming to fruition so i'm excited to see i'm hoping everything stay i'm trying to stay as positive as possible but i'm excited to at least see like where we wind up at here over the next couple of months yeah saturday used to be like a quiet day in the weekly you know nfl calendar it was like the one time when all right saturday maybe go spend some time with your family and now saturday we're just all going to be on the edge of our seats like oh no who's it going to be this week who tested Mm -hmm. positive and isn't going to travel with the team and all that sort of stuff but like i said we're not going to focus too much on that today what i wanted to talk about off the top you write a, a streaming column every week looking at quarterbacks over at four for four I'm going to ask you about who you like as a streamer this week, but before I do that, I want to pick your brain just a little bit here. How do you choose you know, top quarterback options each week? What goes into that process for deciding on a good quarterback streamer in a given week? Sure, and one of the first things that I look for is, is roster rate because the thing that at least kind of uh, categorizes or qualifies a quarterback to be a streamer is one of those guys that you know is going to be on the waiver wire. I know for 10 team teams or uh, like 10 team leagues or 18 leagues or some of those shallower leagues that might not be as adept or at least quick to, for people to pull the trigger on switching quarterbacks. I mean, there might be some guys that are normally on the waiver wire, but typically I look for guys that are uh, at least for from Yahoo because they normally, pr- uh, pr- or at least they have that data available. If they're going to be 40% 
or less rostered uh, in your leagues. Those are the guys that I'm typically looking for for streaming candidates. But at least from a metric standpoint, uh, one of the things that I look at from a defensive standpoint is 4 for 4 schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed. So that's a, a rolling average. Uh, so what it does, it looks at uh, the uh, previous matchups that the quarterbacks have faced. Uh, starts off with uh, at least three games played for each quarterback. And then after that, using the schedule adjusted uh, portion of that, it's able for us to give at least some indication as to what type of game environment each quarterback is going to face in the upcoming week. Uh, but then after that, uh, one of the other things that I look at uh, is just the Vegas betting lines. I mean, for a game, let's say, as uh, like a game like uh, last week's game, so between uh, the Broncos and the Jets, I mean, while it turned out to be just a surprisingly exciting game, I mean, going into it, I mean, that game was only reported to have, I think it was projected for maybe 42 or 44 points. So if we're looking at at least just from a quarterback expectation uh, perspective, if we're only expecting the team to score, let's say less or around 20 points, I mean, it's only like a couple of touchdowns that would go around like for, for each of the quarterbacks. So I'm looking more towards like the higher scoring game. So if we're looking at maybe 48 points or at this case, or, I mean, for this season so far, we've had a number of games projected to go over 50 points. So if I'm looking at a game with a with a small spread, so let's say like six points or less, like being the being the spread, but then also a, a high game total that's going to be projected there, I can at least look at a team that's expected to score a number of points. Uh, but then also getting down into the team or offense itself, we're looking at two things that I look at. One being pace of play. So if I'm looking at an offense that's now going to be running uh, at least a decent number of plays, by decent number of plays, I'm looking at at least uh, somewhere between 60 and 65 plays per game. And that's that's more up pace. I mean, the average, I think, going through week four is somewhere around is like 64, 65. So if I can find a team that's at least running a decent amount of plays, offensive plays like per game, that's a team that I would at least want to uh, look at in terms of an offense that's going to be uh that's going to be moving the ball like fairly fairly decent but then of course i mean we don't know or we can't always project what the red zone efficiency is going to look like but at least if they're going to be executing a number a decent number of plays i'm interested and then finally uh the one thing that i generally look for is also their neutral passing rate so one thing that I've tried to cut out over the last couple of years is not just looking at a quarterback's total volume, because total volume can be influenced by the other team scoring a bunch of points that can be put into negative scoring, and that typically forces them into a pass-heavy script. We can't always project for that, so the thing I look for is their neutral passing rate. So if the score is between like plus-minus seven points or plus-minus a touchdown, if I'm looking at teams that pass or have at least a at the league average or above league average passing rate, that's also where I start to get interested. And as of right now, uh, about the league passing average in neutral in neutral situations is about 57%. So if I'm looking at teams that are passing above that or even at that, and then also looking at what their red zone passing rate is, uh, is going to be, those are some of the key metrics that I look at from a team perspective in order to figure out, okay, these are the quarterbacks at least have the best chance to at least reach uh, a decent floor. So somewhere between 10 and 15 points would be decent. But if they also have access to a ceiling, whether that's going to be via the rush, so guys like Teddy Bridgewater, something like that. I mean, those are the guys that I'm going to be keying in on each week to determine my top uh, streamers. Super thorough. I love it. I absolutely love that. Okay, so with all that in mind, who's your favorite streamer for week five? Uh, it's got to be the consensus streamer uh, across the industry as of right now, and it's it's Teddy Bridgewater. I mean, after, I think last week, he's been actually my favorite candidate uh, for streaming throughout the entire season. 
Uh, I wrote a piece on Teddy, I want to say it was back in March or April over at 4 for 4, um, and just looking at what he was capable of doing uh, when he was still with the Saints over those five or six starts, and then now looking at the offensive concepts that he would have to learn under Matt Rule, and then also looking at uh, what he what was waiting for him once he got into Carolina. Now, I mean, of course, it was supposed to be Christian McCaffrey in the backfield, but at least we've seen over the past couple of weeks, I mean, Mike Davis is at least 80 to 90% of what Christian McCaffrey could do on the field. So with that being said, I mean, he still has DJ Moore. Robbie Anderson has been a, I mean, just a massive, almost like out of nowhere. I didn't expect Robbie Anderson to really put up the numbers he has. But then, of course, Curtis Samuel also being able to work as a wide receiver and also a uh, player out of the backfield. But for after last week, when we saw uh, both, uh, when we saw both Teddy Bridgewater's uh, completion percentage, completion percentage over expected, also, neutral passing rate start to tick up as well. Uh, EPA per play, so expect, uh, another metric that I look at in terms of expected points added. I mean, all those metrics were starting to tick up. And then we also see the rushing, able to convert that 18-yard scamper for a touchdown. So we see that that's also uh, a part of uh, part of his game. I mean, now going against the Falcons, we just saw them lose uh, Devontae Casey uh, last week. So he's out for the season uh, with that uh, Achilles rupture. So it just, I think it all signs point towards the, the Carolina Panthers and Teddy Bridgewater in particular being in a positive game environment and he should be able to continue what he did uh, in week four. And I'm, I'm thinking that from a streaming perspective, there's really not a better candidate that you could find out on the waiver wire. And let's hope with a good matchup, my guy DJ Moore can really get going this week because it's Me been too. a bit of a I, slow start. <laughs> he was my guy. I mean, throughout all of uh, throughout all of the off season, especially after the, his 2019 campaign. I mean, having I mean, he was already starting to break out. If you want to consider 2018 to be his breakout season, I'm not going to fight you on that. But after 2019, he pretty much solidified his spot in the. If he's not considered a wide receiver one, he's sitting right there on the cusp. And so now with Teddy coming in, I mean, Robbie Anderson and Curtis Samuel to help take away some of the deep threat, or at least I thought, I mean, DJ Moore was just locked and loaded as a WR1, and it looks like Robbie Anderson has completely taken over that role. Their ADOTs have flipped, which is completely, I mean, which seems wild to me. Now it's DJ Moore running the shorter routes, or running the, uh, the longer routes, rather. Robbie Anderson's running the shorter routes. I mean, it's just that the utilization is not what we expected at all, but I'm hoping he can get back on track this week. And it's not all bad. DJ Moore's like 18th in receiving yards in the league right now, so it's not like he's just completely fallen off the map, but still not finding the end zone very often. And that, right. that looks like that's going to continue to be a, a big problem. But maybe in this game, he'll get going. I want to stick with quarterbacks, though, here. One thing that I always struggle with is knowing how much to downgrade a quarterback when they're in a bad matchup. And I will give you an example just from last week. I was low on Tom Brady. The Chargers defense, they had been good against opposing quarterbacks. You know, despite the fact that they had some injuries, I still had confidence that, you know, they were going to come through in that matchup with Chris Godwin not there for the Bucks. I thought Brady was going to struggle. He didn't struggle at all. The guy threw for five touchdowns in that game. I feel like that's a bit of an outlier, but I'm curious, when you look at these bad matchups for quarterbacks, how much do you downgrade a quarterback, and I know it's probably going to be case by case here, but when they're going up against a good pass defense, what do you look at when you're trying to figure out how much that's going to hurt them that week? And I'll give you an example from this week. I mean, we could look at Joe Burrow against the Ravens defense, right? How much are you factoring in that matchup when you're dealing with quarterbacks specifically? 
And just to talk about quarterbacks in a bad matchup from last week, I mean, look at the quarterback he was facing on the flip side. There was no way that I was going to say that Justin Herbert, going up against Tampa Bay's, uh, their front seven has been pretty fierce in terms of generating sacks and pressure. I mean, their secondary isn't that great, but I figured that Justin Herbert was still going to have a tough time, and he still came out and over and performed above expectations. Uh, he's another uh, he's another streaming candidate that I have for this week. But when it comes to downgrading quarterbacks, uh, at least for for my purposes, I I sort of put them in a like a in the desperation category. Like if you if you, there's really nobody else left. Uh, at least let's try and at least work through this logically to tell ourselves a story as to whether or not they have access at least to a floor. And now while I don't fully buy into the uh, the defense doesn't matter, I mean, that 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 particular crowd, I mean, I do understand the fact that at the extremes. So if you're going up against a team like Baltimore, especially for this week against Joe Burrow. I can understand like why you would want to at least not necessarily downgrade that matchup, but at least let's adjust expectations and say that we're not going to expect Joe Burrow to go out and throw for over 300 yards, uh, wind up fairly close to being a QB one on the week uh, like he was uh, last uh, last week. And let's make, let's just adjust our expectations that maybe he's going to wind up in the QB 15, 16, 17 column. Because, I mean, especially for Baltimore uh, in general. So as of right now, Baltimore sitting at 23rd uh, in the league in terms of quarterback adjusted uh, fantasy points allowed. Uh, because, I mean, but if you look at some of their other matchups, I mean, they started off, they only left, uh, they only allowed... Cleveland as a team to score six points. Uh, Houston only scored like 16 points after that. Washington only scored 17 points after that. But the quarterbacks, they haven't really done all that bad. So I, I can at least tell myself a story where Joe Burrow at least has a floor performance because we just saw Dwayne Haskins. I mean, he got there on uh, having that rushing touchdown, but he still scored 18.9 points. Uh, last week, uh, Deshaun was able to get there. I think he didn't even have Will Fuller, I believe, in week two. And he had 14.7 points in week two. So it's still possible while Baltimore is still trying to figure things out. I mean, it's still not the best matchup. But I at least think that there's at least a path to a floor for a, for a guy like Joe Burrow, especially considering we've seen Joe Burrow being able to at least put some, uh, put some yards down on the ground himself via the rush. So... While I do downgrade some of those matchups, at least given the offensive system, and especially in Cincinnati as of right now, because I think I have them at, yeah, th so through four weeks, their neutral passing rate uh, is about uh, like 68%. So it's one of the it's one of the highest in the league. I actually take that back, 63%. So given their offensive scheme, what Joe Burrow can do on the ground uh, via the rush, I still think that at least there's a floor there like for, for Burrow. And so while you want to kind of uh, scale back your expectations, at least you can see a path to him winding up with at least 15 points this week. And this is why I wanted to have you on, because I think you're doing a very good job of showing just how much can go in to these quarterback decisions, right? Like there's so much to take into consideration. I think one that gets overlooked often, especially this year, is chemistry, right? With the COVID year, not having the preseason. I wonder how much that's contributing to maybe some of these veteran receivers underperforming. And anybody who listens to the podcast, they know I'm not going to make excuses for A.J. Green. I have been very hard on A.J. Green so far, and I'm not backing down from that. But I'm sure that having a rookie quarterback, it's changed things for him, right? I also think like you could look at the same thing with T.Y. Hilton, right? He's got Phillip Rivers back there. It's their first year together. And Hilton, he hasn't really gotten going yet either this season. I don't know if people are getting on his case as much as they are about A.J. Green, but 
it's getting tough to put T.Y. Hilton in your lineup as well. It's almost the same with both these guys. So this isn't a very good option that I'm about to give you here, but for the rest of the season, which one of those veteran wideouts do you have more faith in? Is it T.Y. or is it A.J.? Now, I'll just now go, just go ahead and tell you right now, uh, I, I, I live in Ohio. Um, I wasn't born here, but I've spent my, most of my time here. I'm actually, I live in Dayton, about an hour north of Cincinnati. So I'm already biased. I mean, I went to school <laughs> in Cincinnati. Um, I was actually in college. Uh, the, so the, I can still recall where I was at uh, the day that uh, Kiefer Van Olhausen uh, rolled into Carson Palmer's knee and completely ruined our chances at a, you know, a playoff win. I, I still remember all of that. And so, and if you go to, for folks that want to double check, you go to my Twitter handle, you look at my profile on my banner is a picture of AJ Green. So I'm telling all this up front to say that I still think, I still hope both fingers, I mean, you know, both hands, fingers crossed that AJ Green can get things on track. And I think if you compare the two objectively, it kind of makes some sense because as I mentioned beforehand, uh, Cincinnati is passing at a top five rate in neutral si- situations, so they're at 63.4%, versus Indianapolis, who, especially after they just grabbed Jonathan Taylor, uh, and actually looking at their splits from last season, I mean, they're also down towards the bottom in terms of neutral passing rate. so right now they're sitting at 55.9%, so below the league average. And the same thing once they get into the red zone. Cincinnati up towards the top in the top 10 at 62.5% red zone passing. Uh, Indianapolis, they've been just as content to try and let Jonathan Taylor or Jordan Wilkins or Naheem Hines uh, try and bang it in, uh, bang it in from, uh, if, when they're in scoring position. So while I do think that it's harder for A.J. Green to see the field just because as of right now, I mean, it's... Uh, it's Tyler Boyd, it's Mike Thomas, it's T. Higgins. Uh, now Drew Sample is now becoming a, a, a larger part of the offense. Joe Mixon now started, is starting to get more targets. I still think there are more options in the passing game for Joe Burrow, so A.J. Green isn't particularly needed. Indianapolis doesn't have that same luxury, especially after losing Paris Campbell. Uh, I mean, Michael Pittman has been in and out of, of that particular offense, and uh, Mo Cox is now just now starting to become a larger part of the offense. So I think T.Y. Hilton's path to touches is much clearer than A.J. Green's, but we've seen so many attempts like over the last over the last four weeks of Joe Burrow trying to get A.J. Green involved. And while I laid out a bunch of, of metrics to support the case, if you qualitated them, I mean, if you just watch the games, it just looks like A.J. Green is done. It looks yeah. like it almost to me, it almost looks like after after every catch, it just it, he, he stays on the ground for just like a half second too long for my comfort. And it just looks like he's either he's either hurt or it's just like there's just a little bit of soreness that typically wouldn't be there for any of the other pass catchers on on that team. So while I look at the entire receiving core and the way that uh, Cincinnati's offense is built and the way that their scheme is predicated towards the pass, and I want to believe, and I still do in AJ Green, it's just it's just difficult at this point. Yeah, because how long can you make the excuses, right? Like the first week or so, Azardi has to knock the rust off, and then it was. Well, he's got a really tough matchup with Darius Slay. And then last week, it seemed like everything should come together. Matchup was pretty good. And then he only has one catch. And then it's like, oh, well, it was a positive game script. They didn't need to throw to him. And that like, how right. uh, how many times can we keep doing this right at some point? And I'm with you on the fact that when you watch the game, I'm not really a, you know, just look at the tape kind of guy. But when you watch the games, 
he does not look like the same player. And it's kind of tough to watch. I mean, A.J. Green has been good for a long, long time while I've been playing fantasy football here. So I don't like to see it. I'm sure you don't like to see it either. But I would go the other way. I would go with T.Y. Hilton on that one uh, just because he still has a shot to be the top guy in that offense, even though I wonder with him whether Zach Pascal is, is the better player right now fantasy-wise in that Colts receiving core. But let's keep talking about getting back on track because on Monday's show, I mentioned that the Giants are one of the teams whose schedule starts to get a little bit better now starting in week five. They just had that dreadful opening month with the Steelers and the Bears and the 49ers and then the Rams, who that defense is better than I expected this year. So that made it even tougher on the Giants. Now they get the Cowboys, though, and the Cowboys have basically let everyone throw on them. Dallas is allowing the fourth most fantasy points to opposing QBs. Is this the week that this Giants passing attack finally gets things going, or are you just staying away from that offense altogether? Now, Daniel Jones is another guy that I wrote up for this week, but he's more of that deeper option because we haven't really seen that upside with with Daniel Jones. But he really hasn't had the matchups in order to kind of showcase that. And obviously it doesn't help if he's lost Saquon Barkley and Sterling Shepard. But really, I mean, I I do think that he has access to the ceiling because we saw uh, last season he was the QB2 in Week 3 versus Tampa Bay, and we knew their secondary wasn't all that great. QB1 versus Detroit in Week 8. QB2 versus uh, the Jets in Week 10. QB1 versus Washington in Week 16. So we've seen a number of times in 2019 where he was able to take advantage of some of those weaker opponents and it really doesn't get all that much weaker than than Dallas. I mean, from a receiving perspective, I mean, if we're looking at uh, guys like Darius Slayton or even Golden Tate uh, to try and find uh, find the end zone, at least have like productive days uh, or productive weeks as a, as a receiver. I mean, we just watched Odell go completely nuclear against them uh, this past weekend, five for eighty one and two. Tyler Lockett the week before I had nine for one hundred and three. Uh, Calvin Ridley before that seven for one hundred nine and two. Robert Woods. I mean, six for 105. I mean, it's just every single receiver that's gone up against them has either gone over 100 yards or a touchdown. So I think the path for Daniel Jones uh, to have a at least a decent fantasy day is is there. I mean, the matchup is perfect. Uh, I mean, the, the way that it sets up for him, the gaming environment and whatnot, uh, I mean, it's absolutely perfect. I just, with the way that their offense is looking right now, and especially even from a team perspective, I mean, they're still passing at one of the highest rates in the league. They're actually number one uh, in passing rate in neutral situations. So I think everything, all the metrics point towards this being the Daniel Jones week. But after not one, not two, not three, but four underperforming weeks, it's just hard for me to immediately get into, uh, I mean, to get on board with Daniel Jones being the play this week. But The process takes us there, so at least I I have to at least write him up and say that he's an option for folks. The part that surprises me, though, and it might just be recency bias for everyone, is before the season, we were all talking about how this first month was going to be so tough for the Giants, and then the tough month comes, and now we're like, wow, you know, I don't know if the Giants can get it done, Mm -hmm. look how bad they've been, and it's like, no, that first month, we knew this was going to happen, everybody. Now at least there's a chance, like you're saying, that they could turn it around. The one thing I don't think enough people are talking about, though, is just Jason Garrett as the offensive coordinator. Like, can we have faith in Jason Garrett as a coordinator anymore? I don't know about that. And obviously coaching plays such a, a huge role in how an offense performs. That's why I'm interested to see how this Texans offense looks after Bill O'Brien was fired, because... I think we could say pretty confidently that a lot of those Texans players weren't exactly 
huge fans of Bill O'Brien. Maybe that's the the nicest way I could possibly put it. So with Bill gone, that weight might just get lifted from this team and maybe we could see them improve a little bit. Do you expect any changes in that offense with O'Brien no longer there? I mean, what's your outlook just for all those Houston skill position players in their first game without him? Oh, I'm very optimistic. I mean, it doesn't get... I mean, after the report came out earlier today that Bill O'Brien was fighting with J.J. Watt, I mean, you have to know that he was just... You have to think he is just... Uh, I mean, he would just a burden on not just the offensive side, but just the entire team, the confidence level. I mean, just the I mean anything associated with the Texans, I mean, especially if you got a guy now just that he had just absolute power within that offense, and now all of that is just gone. You have to think that the team now has at least some some positive outlook on on the rest of their season. And now I know Romeo Cornell. I mean, if you if you look him up in Pro Football Reference and you look at his his coaching history, it hasn't been great. I think his last season as a head coach back in just like maybe 2011 or 2012, he was maybe like two and 14, something along those lines. But I think back then he was coaching like Matt Castle and uh, Brady Quinn. So that's like they are. I mean, not even close to Deshaun Watson. But, I mean, he's also a Bill Belichick disciple, I mean, primarily on the defensive side, but still, I mean, we can at least have some, like, some optimism from, from that aspect. I mean, he has some, at least from an offensive standpoint, he does have some of his concepts do, uh, do have that West Coast offense, like, feel to them, and that fits into what Deshaun does well. Uh, but I think from uh, prior to uh, Bill O'Brien uh, being fired, I mean, there was just so much... I would say the only word I can use to describe the Texans offense is erratic. I mean, their uh, neutral passing rate was fluctuating on a week to week basis. It was all the way down at uh, 53.8%. I want to say back in week two, all the way up to 68 point. uh, Actually, it was in week week three was down at 53.8%. Week one uh, during their first game against the Chiefs, it was all the way up at 68.1%. Uh, Watson's uh, rushing pace was down to 4.3 attempts per game versus 5.5 in 2019. Uh, He was also calling run plays on second and long, and that was uh, causing them to have just an abysmal third down conversion rate down at 34.9%. It was one of the worst in the leagues. I mean, it was setting the Texans' offense up to fail. And while I can't say, I mean, completely give Deshaun Watson a glowing report because we still saw a lot of errant throws from Deshaun Watson. I mean, I, I'm not going to put the entire blame on Bill O'Brien, but we have seen in the past where Deshaun Watson, he needs those attempts. He needs to get into the flow and rhythm of the game in order for him to get back into that aggressive nature that we know Deshaun Watson to have. So now with Romeo Cornell understanding and being a part of that organization uh, well before, I think it was like maybe two seasons or so before uh, Deshaun was even drafted. He knows the organization. He understands the playbook. It offers continuity uh, in a system that Deshaun has now become attached to. So I think from at least from a game plan perspective, it allows Deshaun Watson to still be an aggressive passer, but still, again, keeping the, the entire offense structured, keeping them comfortable and I think, especially given given their upcoming matchups, I mean, if you look at what they have right now ahead of them, I mean, the the next couple of uh, next few games, I mean, set up perfectly for uh, for the Texans. So this week they've got Jacksonville. Next week, assuming everything works out, they're supposed to be playing against Tennessee, Green Bay after that, and then Jacksonville again after their bye. I mean, nothing from a defensive secondary standpoint that gives you any sort of pause regarding uh, downgrading them due to matchup. So if that's their if that's their outlook from a from a defensive standpoint over the next month, I mean, I'm if you were if you still have Deshaun Watson, this is what you were hoping for. 
And this is what at least I think you can sort of expect over the next month. And that matchup with the Jags, I know John Daigle of Roto World pointed out earlier today, he said that CJ Henderson's got the shoulder injury, Miles Jack has the ankle injury. When those two weren't in the lineup in the second half last week against the Bengals, the Bengals went touchdown, touchdown, field goal, field goal, field goal in those possessions. So yeah, it looks pretty good for the Texans this week. The people I feel bad for, the people who bet on Adam Gase to be the first coach fired, because I feel like that looked like a lock at one point. I'm shocked that Bill O'Brien swooped in there and stole that from him. I thought that was going to be the case too, especially coming out of Thursday night. I mean, how do you, I'm, I'm really surprised how the Jets organization looked at Adam Gase's performance. I mean, I, I mean, after Sam Darnold comes out, I mean, with that, with that rushing touchdown, everything, I mean, there was so much optimism in the first half and they crater, not just to Jeff, I mean, not just to Brett Rippon, but also to Jeff Driscoll. I mean, they, they lost to not like to two backup quarterbacks from Denver. And it's just, I don't understand like how that the Jets organization walked out of that, uh, walked out of that game being comfortable with his performance. Yeah, like why some of these franchises wait so long to fire these guys? I just, I don't get it at all. Look at the Browns, right? Like they had seen enough of Freddie Kitchens after one year. They cut ties. They found somebody else. Now they got Kevin Stefanski and he breathed some life into that team, right? He brought over that run heavy system from Minnesota. Now I know Nick Chubb's out for six weeks or so here. And we got people talking about Dearness Johnson as a waiver wire pickup. I wrote him up this week. I think I had him ranked fourth or fifth on on the list of running backs for this week. He's going to be the new number two there until Chubb gets back. But I don't really want to talk about him. I just want to talk about Kareem Hunt. Chubb and Hunt both look like guys who could be top five fantasy backs if they were just alone in an offense and they were given a workhorse role. And we haven't seen that yet. But now, assuming that Hunt's healthy, because I know he was a little banged up, but he still produced last week. If he's healthy, he is the unquestioned starter now for the next, we think, six weeks or so here. So he's going to get his shot. Do you see him as that top five guy until Chubb gets back later in the season? I mean, I think he should be right up there behind like Kamara, Zeke, Dalvin Cook. Does he crack the top five for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what that's the this is the scenario that most folks were drafting Kareem Hunt on because we've seen him finish as an RB1 in the past when he was the lead guy in Kansas City. I don't think, at least from a talent perspective, he might have lost a couple of steps because that was a few years ago. But still, I mean, the talent is still there. We still see his pass catching utility. We still see his vision and also his power uh, as a rusher. I mean, all of those tools are still a part of his game. It was just that he had another powerful and like an, an, uh, a very impressive runner in Nick Chubb just right ahead of him. But if you look at Cleveland's uh, offense as a whole, I mean, as of right now, I mean, for their offensive line, they are number one in adjusted line yards, according to Football Outsiders. So that grades like how much the offensive line is actually a part of uh, a part of that, the the rushing attempts and what they contribute uh, to a rusher's uh, production. So, I mean, they're getting a lot of push up front. And then, of course, like you just mentioned, I mean, Kevin Stefanski bringing over his system from uh, from Minnesota. That plays in perfectly to Kareem Hunt. I mean, as of right now, they're towards the bottom of the league in neutral passing rate at 48.9%. Red zone passing as well, 28.2%. I mean, with all the points that Cleveland just scored this past week, Baker Mayfield himself only accounted for about 30% of that team's production. He only had 15.2 points, and then the and, and then uh, the Browns scored how many points? 40 last week? So it's, to me, it just looks like it, it all points towards... Kareem Hunt being a top five fantasy back uh, 
at least for the foreseeable future, just given his projected rushing share within the offense, the offensive scheme, how it's predicated towards the run. And then are we really expecting Dernis Johnson or Dontrell Hilliard to really have, I mean, I know that there's probably going to be a Kareem Hunt role uh, to for either of those guys, but they don't have the same talent that Kareem Hunt does. So I'm assuming that at least for the time being, I mean, I'm expecting at least a 80-20, 70-30 split for, uh, for Kareem Hunt. And then, I mean, assuming he can take that workload and run with it, I mean, I, I'm assuming, again, that he's going to have that, that workload that puts him at the top of the list for running backs. So all systems go on Kareem Hunt. There's another running back that I want to ask you about, Damian Harris. We saw him come off IR, immediately get thrown into the lead back role, 17 carries, 100 yards in that game. I know, like I mentioned earlier, there's some COVID complications with Stefan Gilmore testing positive. So if the Broncos and Patriots play this week, is Harris someone that you're willing to just put right into your starting lineup now? I think so. I mean, especially given the fact that just immediately coming off of IR, like you mentioned, I mean, he was immediately given a 31% snap share. We saw he actually wound up with not the majority of the touches, but still 43.6% of the touches. My only issue is the fact that he didn't get any targets along with his touches. I mean, but I understand that if you've got James White on the roster, you still got Rex Burkhead there as a part of the team. I can understand like how those passing down situations would go to either one of those two. I mean, but he was still successful on 41.2 percent of his touches so those are the touches that were actually uh, he was adding points or expected points like to uh, to the team's score so I mean while that might rank down towards the bottom of the league again keeping in context that he just came off IR so I can only assume that as as things move forward he'll at least maintain or increase his workload and now if we're also talking about once we get in towards the red zone I mean I still think that while Cam is assuming I'm hoping he gets back sometime soon I mean but Once they get into the red zone, he'll wind up being the primary guy. All right, we'll get you out of here on this. We ask it every week to end the show. Which players are being overlooked in week five? I'll let you go first. You can mention one guy, multiple guys, whatever you got. Who are you going with? All right, I've got three guys. Uh, I like it. All right. One at the quarterback position, wide receiver, and a tight end. Uh, So at the quarterback position, deep option. But I think Kirk Cousins is in play this week. Uh, so as of right now, I mean, going up against Seattle, 25.7 po- adjusted fantasy points allowed to, uh, to quarterbacks. They've allowed a quarterback a QB1 performance every week this season so far. Matt Ryan was a QB8. Cam Newton was a QB2 on that Sunday night thriller. Or was that Monday night? Either way, uh, Dak Prescott was the QB4. And then Ryan Fitzpatrick just this past week was the QB12. I mean, Cousins, like while he's not always a runner, we know that at least that's in his bag of tricks. So Kirk Cousins, deeper play. I know that they don't pass a lot. I don't think he's yet to crack 27 attempts in a game. So even if on a low volume passing offense, I mean, if there are any other games that are postponed or you need to find other options, I mean, at least for a floor, Kirk Cousins is a decent option. Uh, And now for tomorrow's game, I mean, now looking at, I mean, they said Chris Godwin's supposed to be out. Uh, I think Justin Watson is supposed to be out. We're still waiting to hear back on Scotty Miller. I think he's questionable. Uh, Tyler Johnson, uh, rookie, slot receiver for the Bucs. Uh, slot receivers against Denver. Uh, we've got Danny Amendola. He went 5 for 81. Golden Tate, uh, he went 5 for 47. Calvin Ridley uh, out of the slot. Uh, he was 5 for five for a buck 10. Uh, so it's thin, but given the limited options, I know Mike Evans is still going to be part of it, but even he was hurt this past week. I still think that Tyler Johnson could wind up getting some run. It's the deepest of options, but if you're looking for some help at wide receiver this week, 
that's at least an option for you. And then finally, uh, at the tight end position, for most folks, I mean, Eric Ebron might be on your waiver wire. 72% snap share. I mean, 86 of those snaps uh, when he was running a receiving route, which would put him at 12th for all tight ends, especially given that they only played three games so far. Uh, second in red zone targets. Uh, and now, I mean, looking at uh, tight ends, I mean, tight ends that have been uh, that, uh, that facing the opposing team that they're going up against in week five. I mean, we'll take George Kittle out of the equation uh, because Philadelphia, I mean, I mean, he's just completely skewed all of that. But Tyler Higby still went five for 44 and 54 and three. Logan Thomas, I mean, even though we haven't said much about him in the past couple of weeks, he went four for 37 and one against Philly. So I think there's at least a chance for Eric Ebron and uh, Ben Roethlisberger to at least put up some decent numbers. While I know that everybody's going to be focused on Deontay Johnson, Juju Smith-Schuster, so on and so forth. But Eric Ebron, I think, is a decent streaming candidate at the tight end position. I like all of those. I had Ebron as my top streamer in my waiver wire column on Monday, nice. so I'm right there with you. Uh, I'll mention just a couple guys that we kind of touched on earlier. Golden Tate in that great matchup. I think everybody focused on Darius Slayton and Evan Ingram, but Tate can still get it done with Sterling Shepard out. He's a very intriguing flex play. Um, Zach Pascal, the other one who I think, you know, he's... He's come on here with all the injuries in that Colts receiving core. And if T.Y. doesn't get it done, if T.Y. keeps going down that path, uh, don't sleep on Pascal. But I don't want to do this one. But Jamison Crowder, I do not want to recommend a Jet in this spot. But especially with Joe Flacco playing, I don't think anyone is going to want to put a Jet into their lineup. But Crowder is the only guy in that offense right now worth starting and I include Le'Veon Bell if he comes back and plays this week Mm -hmm. let's see him do something for a week before we get him into any lineups but Crowder I mean he's only played two games so far this year he's gone over 100 yards in both games and including seven for 104 last week in that first game back coming off injury so it's risky to trust the Jet in your lineup but I think he could be overlooked this week the Falcons running backs I mean Todd Gurley might be a little obvious but if you want to go really deep Brian Hill, two weeks ago, he got 10 touches in that game. If he can get up into that 10-touch range this week against that Panthers run defense, they're giving up the second most fantasy points to opposing running backs. We could see him do something in that game. And then I'll throw out a deep tight end as well. Drew Sample. We were all in on him when C.J. Zoma went down. Sample came out, gave us that zero. And then the next week, we were like, all right, we've had enough. We're not going back to that well. But he's gone over 45 yards in two of his last three games, and you can attack the Ravens with the tight end. That is one spot where they can be had. They're giving up the 11th most fantasy points to that position on the year, so he is a risky option as well. But if you're in a tough spot or a tight end premium league, something like that, you could take your chances with Sample this week or just stash him and see if he can keep this up. And it's a a cheap way to get in on that Bengals passing attack and try to get someone who's associated with Joe Burrow. Wholeheartedly agree on all of those. And I guess uh, since I already made my Cincinnati fandom known, I'm all in on that Drew Sample play this weekend. (laughs) Nice. Well, that is all for today's show. Make sure you're following Chris on Twitter at Chris Allen FFWX. Chris, thank you so much for jumping on today, man. Anything that you're working on right now? Anything you want to mention before we sign off? Uh, so, I mean, definitely check out the quarterback streaming column. I've got a another piece over at Football Guys. It's the three lessons that I've learned from each week. Uh, so just kind of I'd folk, typically focus on the disappointing or letdown spots that we've kind of seen. So like the Mark Ingrams of the world, 
uh, even like Philip Rivers like, over the past couple of weeks. I typically I typically focus on those, but this week I started talking about Justin Jefferson and what we can uh, look towards for his outlook for the rest of the season. I would then also uh, tomorrow morning catch my column, uh, the Daily Dose over at Roto World. I'll be kind of recapping all the news from today, which there's been a lot. Uh, so that should be out tomorrow morning over at Roto World. I think about eight, nine o'clock in the morning is when that drops as well. Awesome. We're going to have to do this again, man. And everybody should definitely go check all that stuff out. You should also check out my week five rankings, which are live on the score app. My trade value chart went up today. People are just hounding me every week to get that up. I will be doing it every Wednesday. Don't worry, folks. It's going to be up there. Um, my start, sit, stash, quick column will be up on Friday. And then I'll be back on Friday for a live video chat answering your questions. Until then, though, big thanks again to Chris. Big thanks to everybody out there for listening. And we will see you next time. Said leave on time. My baby said leave on time. Leave on time with me tonight.